Um, but our theme this week is getting back to reality. I know you have your notes there um, in your booklet. And some of this, they're all, all of this, all four sessions are in there. Some of the sessions have a few more blanks than others to fill in. Um, but uh, hopefully we, we can talk about getting back to reality. And re getting back to reality is something that we usually say, like you'll say maybe, you know, on Saturday when you're getting ready to go home after brunch, right? Or at the end of a vacation where you've had a lot of fun, you say, oh, it's time to get back to reality. And what we usually mean by that is not um, necessarily positive. Uh, usually it means that, you know, the fun is over and it's time to, you know, get back to the grind and work or school or whatever you left at home uh, to uh, get back to that. Let's see if we're, we're going yet. I was going to show you a picture. There we are. So there's Mark. He's the older twin, five minutes <laughs> older. And uh, that's our family. The Lord's given us four girls. And so the two younger ones are with me here this week. You'll see them on the campsite. Uh, Meredith is the youngest. She's the one with the glasses. And then um, she is 11 in sixth grade. Morgan is 12. She's the one on the front with the white shirt on. She's 12 and in seventh grade. And then Megan over on the left side is our oldest. She's 21. She's a senior nursing student at Maranatha. And she was the assistant nurse here this summer. And so she really enjoyed that, learned a lot from the nurses here. And then Madison is on the other side of the screen. She is almost 20 years old and she is a junior elementary education major at Maranatha. She's traveling this semester on a music team for the school, representing and recruiting and going around mostly the East Coast um, recruiting for Maranatha. And so those are the, that's the family the Lord has given us and we love serving in ministry together there at Maranatha. My husband is the um, director of discipleship and the dean of the Bible department and seminary um, there at Maranatha, and we love the ministry God's given us. We've been there for about um, five years now. So am I, I'm trying to advance. Am I, should I point it? out? Oh, there we go. So anyway, back to our topic, now that I showed you our family. Um, getting back to reality might mean, oh, it went away. It might mean big piles of laundry for you, right? It's amazing. Even if you had the laundry all cut up when you walked out the door, right? children and husbands can generate a lot of laundry in a short amount of time. And uh, it's amazing what we can uh, walk in the door to. Um, it might be a sink full of dishes, right? It might be a sink full of dishes and they were all clean and put away when you went home, when you left, and then when you get back, it's just overflowing again. Um, you know, and when you've left your children with your husband, you never know what's going on. You know, dads get really creative with children. And uh, you, you just never know what you're gonna walk back into, but it's probably best that you don't know, honestly. <laughs> because if you did, you might not ever leave again. But as long as your children survive, then I guess we're all good, right? If they're alive and uh, still breathing when you get home, then, then you've, your husband has done his job. How many of you have children that you left home with your husband? Yes, okay, so you are with me, and hopefully he's doing the job, and don't check in, he's fine. He let him call you, right? Uh, but we're gonna talk about getting back to reality in a different sense, not getting back to the drudgery of life. We're gonna talk about a grander, greater reality that is much bigger than anything that's going on down here. And you'll notice the title of this session is comparing reality with reality. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that 
the, the little r realities are all the stuff that we see going on down here. And scripture tells us that the temporal things we see are really only transient. They're passing away, right? They're, they're here now, but they're going to be gone. And if you've lived any amount of time, you've seen things change. People change. People come in and out of your life. Your circumstances change. Your finances change. All of these things are transient. But we're going to compare that to what's really going on and how what's really going on in the heavenly realm bears a lot of, of impact on what's going on with our little r realities, so to speak. So that's what we mean by comparing reality with reality, the big R reality, what God is really doing in the world and what's really important and what really matters, right? The reality that engulfs everything else in our lives and in our world. So you can look there at the introduction if you want to. I'm gonna read it out loud, so if you can just listen, but it's there in your notes if you wanna look. Life can be busy, sometimes crazy. The demands of normal life weigh on us. There are so many voices, so many responsibilities, so many deadlines. We know what our priorities ought to be, but we just can't seem to keep them in order. We feel guilty because we can't get it all done. Have you ever been there before? Probably most of us have gone through a period of time in our lives where that's how life felt. And maybe some of you are there now. If you have small children, you're probably there now. Or if you're trying to be a working mom or whatever you do in your life, we can, we can go through stages where we feel this way. But then life can also be boring and mundane. Reality can look pretty bleak. The drudgery of daily life stretches before us with no end in sight. We are tempted to think life will never change. Maybe you're there. Maybe you've been there. I haven't been personally really in this stage yet, but I can imagine that being um, a mom, an empty nester, where your children have left home and they kept you busy and then all of a sudden they're gone and moved on with their lives, how life could look pretty bleak for a while and pretty mundane. But then life can be hard, very uncomfortable, extremely painful. Sickness, sadness, death, and change become our everyday realities for long stretches of time. How much can we take and for how long we feel burdened down to the point of despair? Maybe you've been here. Maybe you're, maybe you're there now. Maybe that's your experience of reality. Maybe that is your reality right now or has been. I've been there. Amy shared a little bit about um, something that the Lord brought our family through. In 2012, my sister was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And I, have it, uh, I had a job when I first got out of school. I was an oncology, adult oncology nurse and worked with cancer patients for quite a while. And so when I heard stage four colon cancer, I knew in my heart, there's not much hope. You know, God can do a miracle, but humanly speaking, there's not much hope. And Julie fought the cancer hard. They did everything they could. And the Lord took her home to be with him 10 months later. And she was my best friend on earth. We were married to brothers, as Amy uh, told you. Our kids are double cousins. You know, we spent the summers together at camp. And, uh, and the Lord took her home. And, you know, the journey of cancer was on a roller coaster, as you can imagine, or if you've walked with someone through that journey of cancer, you know what that's like. But adjusting to life without her was even harder. The fallout of what happens when someone is suddenly removed, someone in the middle of life, you know, five small children, a husband, a ministry, and, and my sister, my parents' daughter, you know, and all of a sudden she's gone. It leaves a big hole for a long time. And adjusting to life without that person 
is a process and grief is a process. And this is what my life looked like for quite a while. And you know, during that time, the book of Colossians became a dear friend to me. Um, You know, we all have passage of scripture or other things that we go to Um, that we've gone to that have been special to us during a hard time. And that's how the book of Colossians became for me. Um, That's where the Lord took me, different people and different friends, pastors, uh, people in my life shared passages of scripture with me. It seemed like they always pointed back to Colossians 3. And that's where the Lord took me to um, help me get through this time. There we go. Oh, am am I controlling this? Or is he... Okay. <laughs> like your cell phone, you know, you hold it out to get a signal. Okay. Okay, okay, that's great. You can switch it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. No, no, it's good. It's all good. You know, technology can be a blessing or a curse. Not sure if it's, yes, next, next slide. There we go. Colossians 3, 1, one through 4. That's where we're going to start. And uh, we're going to stay in the book of Colossians mostly for all of the sessions this weekend. Um, But we're gonna start here in Colossians 3, kind of right in the middle of the book. And this is the transition point from the doctrinal section to the practical section. Tomorrow morning, we'll be more in Colossians 1, and then tomorrow evening, it'll be the later part of Colossians 3. But let's go ahead and read these verses. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, "'If ye then be risen with Christ, "'seek those things which are above.'" where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And we could go on, and we will go on later on um, in the, the, um, the retreat. But this is where we're gonna start. And you know what the Lord taught me through the trial that he brought me through, brought us as a family through, is that there is more going on than meets the eye. The things we see here are only part of the true reality. And our only access to the true reality really is with eyes of faith, right? Because by definition, faith is things that you can't see. And there's more going on that we can't see that bears very much on what's going on here. And when we understand those true realities, you can go ahead and change the slide, um, when we understand those, we, we are able to better understand what's going on here. Um, what is going on? What really is going? What's the true reality? Well, it's the realm where God is seen, right? So we're at realm where God is, where the angels are, where right now, even while we're living and speaking here on earth, there are believers who have passed on, right? Experiencing the presence of God. And, uh, you know, it's the realm of the heavenly beings, the realm where all the good purposes that we wonder about, and we know that there's good in our trials, but we wonder what they are. In that realm, they're known. They're already known, Um, just as matter of fact. It's where all those things are known. The, The realm where true beauty is, pure beauty. The realm where we will know as we are known. And we're all on a journey. If we know the Lord as our savior, we're on a journey to that realm but it doesn't mean that because we're not there yet, it's not real. It's going on right now, right? And we are on our way there. And in preparation, we as believers are positioned in Christ. All throughout the book of Colossians, several times, 
Paul mentions that believers are in Christ. He uses that phrase, in Christ, I don't know exactly how many times, but quite a few. It's one of the themes of the book, um, that we are in Christ. And knowing our position in Christ helps us understand the realities that we're facing, the trials, the death, the chronic pain, the sickness, the wayward children, you know, all of the things that we struggle with here, knowing our position in Christ helps us make sense of those things and help us think about them right and respond to them rightly and keep our emotions in check and govern our emotions. It helps us do all of those things. So first of all, we'll look at the reality of our, per, our position in Christ. I heard one preacher say it this way, so I can't take credit for this thought or this expression of thought, but he said, whatever is true of Christ is true of us. And I like that sort of summary of what it means to be in Christ, because whatever's true of him is by default true of us. Um, so first of all, what is true of us? Well, first of all, we are dead. We are dead, and obviously we're physically not dead, but we are dead to sin. Verse three of Colossians three, we just read it. It says, for ye are dead. This is the first reality that we need to understand, that when we become Christians, when we trust Christ as our savior, because, his, because he died for our sins, his death counted as our death to sin. Do you realize that? We don't ever spiritually have to die because Christ did it for us. Now, we're not dead physically yet, but we're dead to sin. We're dead to our old nature. If you flip over to Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, um, this, this chapter, these, these verses shed a little bit of light on what that means. Ye, we are dead. Ye have died is the actual translation of that. Romans 6, verses 6 through 11 says this, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. That's true of us. That is the true reality. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. This is for us right here, verse 11. Likewise, reckon or consider or grab on to the fact that this is true of you and of me if we know Christ. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when, it, when Colossians 3 tells us we are dead or you have died, that's what it means. It means that Christ's death for sin counted as our death because he wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for our sins. And by the way, if you um, are confused about that or if you think, well, I'm not a believer. I don't even know what she's talking about. You've come to the right place. This is a wonderful place to get your questions answered, to find out what it means to be a Christian, to be saved, to be in Christ because all are welcome Everyone is invited to know Christ as your savior and it's the most important decision you'll ever make. So don't ever hesitate to ask any of us, you know, how, what does that mean? How can I be in Christ? What does it mean to believe or to be a Christian or to be saved? You know, all these terms we kind of throw around, they roll off our tongue sometimes and we casually say them and, and to someone who's never heard them, it might sound a little confusing. So please ask and we would rejoice if someone here came to know Christ this weekend. We really would. So please ask. 
Um, we would love to explain it to you. We are dead. I love what John Davenant said. It's up there on the screen. It said, the dominion of sin is broken and its power is gradually being subdued through grace. And eventually all its power over us will be gone when we are glorified. Being dead means that we are able to reject earthly things and philosophies and are able to desire things that are heavenly. You know, before we know Christ, we are not able to do that. That's not our reality. But when we know Christ, we are able to overcome anger. We are able to overcome addictions. We're able to have hope for ourselves and hope for other people because we are dead to sin. We have the ability to not sin. Now we still do. That's the reality, right? When we're in our glorified bodies someday, sin won't have any dominion over us. And that will happen, right? But, and that's reckoned to be true of us already, that we're still living in the little our realities right now. And so we don't see that, but we grasp it through the eyes of faith. So first of all, we are dead. Secondly, we are risen. And um, the passage we just read in Romans touched on that too. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but in chapter one, it talks about um, Christ being the firstborn from the dead. And I, I used to think, well, he's really, you know, he wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead. You know, he, when he was on earth before he died and rose again, well, Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? The widow's son. Uh, even in the Old Testament, we have accounts of people being raised from the dead, right? But the difference is Christ rose from the dead to never die again. You think about that? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but that means he had to die again, right? Because he was still human in a human body. Anyone that was raised humanly had to go through the death process again, kind of rough on them, right? To die twice. But, you know, Christ rose again and he will never die again. And that's the big, big difference. Um, that's why he's called the firstborn from the dead. His death counted as ours and his resurrection makes our resurrection possible. And let me tell you, when you lose a loved one that knew Christ, that is the biggest comfort to know that because Christ rose and conquered death, so will they. So it's just a matter of time, right? It's really just a matter of a few years here on earth and then she will be raised incorruptible and so will I. And so will anyone that knows Christ as their savior. That is the true reality that encompasses every other reality, no matter what it is in our lives. So we are risen and then we are hidden. Number three, we are hidden. Verse three tells us that. For ye are dead and your life is hid, your real life, the real you, your soul, your eternal soul is hid with Christ in God. And we think of hid in our modern language as like hide and seek, like it's hidden, you can't find it, you know, um, games you play with kids. But in this, in this um, context, it doesn't mean that we can't be found but it means that our real self is held securely in Christ and Christ is in God. There's no more secure place than a believer enjoys. There's no doubting our salvation. When we understand this big R reality that we are safe, that we are accepted. You know, the thing we want most of all, most of us is to be accepted. Well, it's already true of us. We are accepted if we're in Christ. He has accepted us. And he has accepted all believers. And so that's why we accept each other, right? If Christ has accepted us, who are we to reject anyone, right? We are held securely. We didn't save ourselves and we don't keep ourselves saved. So there's no doubting. 
There's no room for doubting our salvation. Oh no, did I say the right words? No, that's not what it's about. It's about your heart response to God's gift of Christ and his death and his resurrection for you and for me. That is the true reality. That's what's really true about all of us, that we are dead to sin. We are risen with Christ. It's already done, right? And we, we believe it through faith and we'll see it one day. And we are hidden. So, you know, verse, uh, chapter three, verse one says, if ye then, or since ye then, it could also be translated. But it's really an if then statement. If this is true, then this is what should happen. Okay, so what does it say? If ye then be risen with Christ, if this is really true about us, and it is, as we've seen, what will our response be? Our response, you can uh, forward the slide because the next one is our response to our position in Christ. What should our natural response be to the truths that we just talked about, that we're dead, that we're risen, and that we are safely, securely hidden with Christ, and nobody can take that away from us. Um, is, as we sing, by the way, as we sing the theme song, I want you to notice some of these phrases that are actually from this book of the Bible, from this passage. Um, as you sing and get a little bit more familiar with it, um, these will jump out at you, because we've talked about them now, and uh, our, our, our um, security that we have in Christ, and that he is sufficient to hold us until he comes back for us. So what is our response? Well, first of all, we will seek above things. That's what it says right there in chapter three, verse one. If ye then be risen with Christ, then you should seek those things which are above. And you know, we think of above, and sometimes when we, th- we talk about heaven or the realm where God is, we point up, right? We think of above, but the idea here is really more apart. Something that's different, that's not part of this realm, it's apart from this realm, it's in a different realm, but those are the things we are supposed to seek. Seek the things that are above, things belonging to a different realm that is unseen, but still very real and actually more real because it's lasting. Do you realize that realm, this realm is passing away, it's transient. The world's gonna burn up someday. Hate to disappoint all the environmentalists, but it really is, right? It's gonna be gone, it's gonna burn. And the realm where God is, is the lasting, solid, eternal realm that will never pass away, okay? And that's what we're talking about. We're supposed to seek things that are in that realm. Okay, we'll talk about how to do that or how, maybe how not to do that um, in just a minute. But, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 4.18 was a verse that was very special to my sister when she was going through cancer. It says this, while we look not at the things which are seen, Now that seems like a contradiction in terms right there. We're supposed to look at things that are not seen. How do we do that? But at the things which are not seen, then it gets even more confusing. You're supposed to look at things that are not seen. What? For the things which are seen are temporal or transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal or lasting. So really the word there, look, while we look at things, what that means is we look with eyes of faith. We seek to know, we dig into the things which are not seen, things pertaining to the realm where God is. And where do we find that? In scripture, right? We love God's word. That's how we seek things which are above or apart in that realm, because this is where we're told about them. And uh, this is where we can find out about them. We want to know eternal truths to help us interpret 
the realities that we see here. And I'll give you an example of this. In Psalm 73, you can turn there if you want to, or you can just listen. But this is, um, the psalmist is sort of lamenting what he sees going on in his world. And he sees wicked people prospering, people who don't fear God, enjoying life and not having any problems. Do we ever do that? Sometimes I do. I look around at the people on TV or the movie stars or you know, people who get a lot of attention, have a lot of money, and it doesn't seem like they have any problems until you look at the tabloids in the grocery store line and then you realize their lives are a mess. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it is tempting to be a little bit jealous and just to go, look, all these people who don't love God and they're the ones with all the money and all the power and all the fame and all the prosperity. Well, David had the same perspective. In uh, Psalm 73, he said, for I was envious in verse three, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse nine, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Um, and he goes on and on about how they're violent people and how they're, you know, they have everything heart could desire and they're wicked and they're cruel and all of those things. And he was feeling envious. He admits it right there in verse three, I feel envious at that. But then look at down in verse 16. When I sought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Verse 18, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How they are brought into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So he said, he's looking at this through an eternal perspective. He's looking at the realities, the little r realities, from the big R reality perspective. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I saw what these people's end is, right? And then he wasn't envious anymore. Nobody's envious when someone is destroyed. So that's kind of an example of what I mean by letting the reality of God and his word and the eternal things affect our, our perspective on the things that are going on here. So we will seek above things and then we will love above things. I love the word in verse two, the word affection. That's a colorful word, isn't it? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Affection implies familiarity, doesn't it? It implies comfort. The things that we have affection for are the, the homely things, right? The things in our home, the things that we see and interact with all the time. Think about you know, your affection for maybe your pet or you know, something that's at home that just brings you comfort, right? That's the idea here. Set your affection, be comfortable with, be familiar with things above, the above things. Now this does not come naturally to us, does it? Because we live in the little R realities. We see what's going on in our world and we fill the pull of it sometimes, don't we? And so we have to work at it. We have to be intentional about this, about loving and seeking above things. So how do we do this? Well, a few ways, and these, this is not exhaustive, but a few ways that we can help ourselves to develop a love and an affection for above things or apart things. And first of all, the first one might sound a little funny until I explain it. First of all, we should have an informed imagination. If you think about what faith is, it's believing something that we don't see, right? That's in the realm of our imagination. We imagine something about God based on what we know and what we hear, right? And what we read. 
we imagine what that is like and what that looks like and, and should be like in our lives. So we need to be careful that we are informing our imagination properly because that is the realm of faith. Um, in our home, we have a rule that uh, if the girls ever wanna watch a movie that is based on classic literature, our rule is they have to read the book first. Now, why would I have a rule like that? Well, it's because I want them to read the book and I want their imagination to have to do the work, right? I want them to read it and I want them to picture what's going on in their minds. I want them to not be lazy, but I want them to read the description of the landscape or the battle or the relationship or whatever it is. And I want them to picture it in their minds, right? I want them to have to do that work. So we've made a rule that they can't um, watch a movie that is based on a classic book. Now, don't do this perfectly or apply it perfectly. I'm sure I've let them watch some movies that they haven't read the book yet. But in general, they're not allowed to do that because I want their imagination to be informed by what they read. I don't want them to, all the work to be done for them. And you know what? I think we have to be careful, very discerning. You know, you may have that rule in your house, you may not. That's, that's neither here nor there. But when it comes to Christian things, to biblical things, to uh, things pertaining to the other realm, to eternity, I think we have to be very careful what we allow into our minds, especially into our eye gate, when it comes to Christian, labeled Christian entertainment. And you know, I know we could talk about this for a long time, but I think we have to be really careful that we don't let someone else imagine things pertaining to our faith for us. I think we have to be careful with shows like The Chosen and movies like The Passion of the Christ. And again, we could talk about this for a long time, but I think we have to be discerning. We have to make sure that th this is the revelation God's given us. He clearly wanted us to read it and imagine it based on what we read. And I think sometimes when all the imagining is done for us, then when we go to our Bibles and we read about Christ's death and resurrection, or we read about the stories or the miracles of Christ, what do we automatically picture in our mind? What we saw on the screen. And I think we have to be very discerning about that. I, I didn't give an exhaustive list by any stretch. And you know what I'm talking about. And you know that the Lord can give you discernment for what you should watch and what you should not watch, especially for your children. What are you filling their minds with? Are you doing all the work for them by going, here's a screen, you watch about Christ. No, this is what God's given us. Anything outside of that, I think we have to be careful that we're informing our imagination properly through scripture. So we need to have an informed imagination. You know, I tell my kids, especially with secular entertainment, the question is not what's wrong with this movie or book or play or whatever they're wanting to do. The question is, how is this going to inform my worldview? Is it a proper worldview? Am I informing my imagination according to the way God made the world? You know, and uh, so what category does it put God in? Does it make God seem silly or small or not important? Um, sensual, you know, or silly? Does it glorify or normalize things that God calls sin? Our world is trying to do that. They're trying to normalize those things and we have to be careful not to let it happen. It's an active intentional thing that has to happen in our lives in order to keep our imagination properly informed about who God is. That will help us set our affection on things above. We also should have a disdain for worldliness. Disdain is even, goes a little farther than a hatred for worldliness. It's almost like a 
I don't need that. I don't need worldliness. Um, C.S. Lewis called this world the Shadowlands. And part of the place he got that, uh, that word picture, really, is from this picture. You can advance the slide. Maybe some of you remember this in a philosophy class in college or something. This is an artist's rendering of Plato's cave. And, you know, Plato was a philosopher that lived about 400 years before Christ um, was born. And so he would have lived well, about 400, 500 years before the Apostle Paul who wrote this. So Paul would have actually probably known about this description. And it's, it's kind of an apt description, even though Plato, the philosopher, was not a Christian. Um, he was a pagan, a Greek philosopher that sat around with other Greek philosophers and talked all day about philosophy. But he gave us this picture. And uh, again, he didn't draw this. He described it. And artists throughout the centuries have driven, painted and, and drawn pictures of it. But if you look at it closely, you can see that on one side of the wall there, the rock wall under the cave. So first of all, you see it's a cave, right? And above the cave, there's a beautiful world that's green. The sky is blue. There's a man up there. There's some people living up there, right? But the people in the cave don't know anything about that above world, anything that even exists at all. All they see are, is what's right in front of them on the wall and it's shadows. It's shadows that are moving by. And Plato described these people as chained to the wall. They couldn't look one way or the other. All they could do is look straight ahead. And we, the viewer, can see that, first of all, there's a world outside of the cave. And second of all, the things they see going past them aren't even the real things, right? They are just shadows of the real things that are going on behind them, but they don't see any of that. And that's where C.S. Lewis, I believe, got his idea of the Shadowlands because the people sitting there, that's all they know. That's all they see. They named the shadows and they played with them and they had little games with them in their minds and, and that's all they knew. And you know what? That's what worldliness is. It's playing with shadows. This transient world that's going by rapidly, right? And we hold on to stuff, don't we? We don't want to lose this or that or we could never live without this person you know what, those are all shadows that are passing by. And so when we have a worldly mindset, really that's just the mindset that leaves God out of the equation, right? We think of worldliness sometimes as a certain look or a certain haircut or a certain lifestyle. And those are all sort of symptoms of the problem. But really worldliness is just leaving God out. It's playing with shadows that are going by, not even giving any attention to the fact that there's, there's something making those shadows. There's something above us and apart from us that we can be a part of if we, but by faith, even though we can't see it right now, hold on to that and grab onto it. So that's why we should have a disdain for that because we don't want to play with shadows. That's why I don't want my children to be worldly. I don't want them to play with shadows. I want them to seek the real things, to find out what, who created that. You know, what, what else is there that I should be setting my affection upon? So we should have a disdain for worldliness. Um, a book that my sister and I read together while she was going through cancer was called Beyond the Shadowlands by a man named Wayne Martindale. And he talked about how some people um, look at Christians who believe in heaven and in another realm, escapists. And they say, well, and I've had people tell me this. I have a, a, a cousin actually who's an atheist, agnostic, and she told me that kindly. But basically she said, you believe in that because it brings you comfort. And isn't that escapism? Well, actually, um, if heaven, Wayne Martindale says, I think this is up there, if heaven is the ultimate and permanent reality and this is the shadowlands, who are the escapists? 
worldly people. Worldliness is escapism, not believing in the true reality through faith, even though we can't see it. So a disdain for worldliness. And then number three, we should be useful while on earth. This is how we set our affection on things above is by being useful here on earth. You know, you've heard the phrase, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. But actually, the heavenly-minded should be the most earthly good, right? We should be the ones out in our community making our community a better place. We should be the ones reaching out to people so for the purpose of sharing the gospel, but also for the purpose of just making the world as good as it can be while we are here. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, you can, oh, here it is. He said this, hope means a continual looking forward to the eternal. Um, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In other words, set your affection on things above. And God will give us the best life we can have here on earth. Um, I love what I heard a preacher say, and I wish I could give credit to this um, preacher. I don't remember where I heard it, but he said, this world is the closest thing that an unbeliever will get to heaven. But for believers, this world is the closest we'll ever get to hell. Isn't that interesting to think of it in that way? And um, I thought, you know, that's, that's why we set our affection on things above. So how are we useful here on earth? Well, we should respect God's creation. You know, I already said this world's gonna burn up, right? It's not gonna last. It's temporal, it's transient but it still deserves our awe and our care because God made it. Isn't the world an amazing place? Outer space is amazing. The study of science, all the different sciences is amazing. And we should, we should be in awe of that because God made it. We don't worship it, right? Um, but we, we do stand in awe and we take care of it while we're here. And then we should respect God's creatures and specifically other humans. Other people that are made in the image of God deserve our respect. And that'll make us the most useful here on earth. Humanity is special because humans are made in God's image. And think about this, God actually stooped to become a human. He became one of us. He could have come in any form, really, that he wanted to. But he chose to become one of us so that he could be our substitute for our sins and make it possible for us to be with him forever. Um, you know, respecting God's creatures means taking care of our bodies. Again, not worshiping our bodies, not demanding all this me time and pamper time, but eating healthy, taking care of our temple of the Holy Spirit, which uh, belongs after all to God. Um, it's important, reach out to other believers, reach out to other people because they're special. Um, get to know people, be hospitable. You know, use what God's given you to make life better for somebody else because, simply because, other humans are created in God's image. So that's the, the response, and much more could be said there, but the response to our position in Christ. And then, what about the results of our position in Christ? Verse 4 tells us this. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is when our faith will be made sight right? And I can't wait for that day. 
Again, we, we know through scripture what's going to happen. We know the end of the story. And sometimes we cry out, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? Because we see so much wickedness in our world and so much corruption in our own country even. And uh, so much mistreatment of people and um, all the wickedness going on in the world. And what a comfort to know that it will all be made right in the end. It will, all the evil will be undone and we will be with Christ. First, Christ will appear in glory. You know, the disciples stood and watched Jesus go up into the heavenlies, right? Disappear before their eyes. And then they stood there and the angels came and said to them, don't worry, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And I'm sure they hoped and thought it was going to happen sooner rather than later. And throughout the centuries since then, people have watched and hoped for that. And sometimes it's easy to lose hope that, oh, that was so long ago that that happened. You know, over 2,000 years ago that, that Jesus ascended into heaven. And it's easy to lose faith, isn't it? To go, that's not ever going to happen. Don't lose hope. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be surprised when it happens. And nothing else has to happen on earth for that to happen. It's coming. The day is coming when our faith will be made sight. So we can't lose hope. And if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, we've got to pass on the truth and the faith to the next generation. And I hope you're doing that in some way, whether with your own children that you still have in your home. Be very intentional the way you share the faith with them. If you don't have children in your home, find children in your life. Find children at church. Find someone you can invest in and pass along the faith. Because the next generation needs to be hopeful and watching and praying so they can pass it along until Jesus really does come back. And maybe it'll be in our lifetime. I would love to see that. And then secondly, we will appear in glory. And you know, at that moment, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed. And all this life is gonna seem like a dream. It's gonna seem like it went by so quickly and now we're with God. And we won't be disappointed. Our faith will be sight. And we will be united with God. We will see the unveiled Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. You know, when he came the first time, he came as a humble child, as a baby in a manger. And he was not really that well received all throughout his life. He was rejected by his own people, right? And ultimately, he was hung on a cross and killed like a common criminal, he did not appear in glory, but that's not the whole story. That's not who he is, right? We're going to see him as he is, as a conquering king. And let me tell you, we're going to be really glad that we're on his side because he is going to be the victor in the end over sin, over death, over hell, and we are in him. So whatever's true of him is true of us. We will inherit heaven and then we will be reunited with other believers Sometimes when you've lost someone that you loved very much, it's really easy to kind of get the cart before the horse and go, I want to go to heaven to see that person, <laughs> right? Because you've missed them so much and you have so many memories with them here on earth and you just think, oh, I can't wait to get there. Heaven's so much sweeter because they're there, you know? But you know what? That's really not true, is it? Heaven is not sweeter because my sister is there. Heaven was pretty sweet before she went to heaven because Jesus is there, right? That's what makes heaven sweet. Now, 
We will be reunited with them though. And that is something to look very much forward to. And I can't wait to see her again, but I wanna see Jesus first, right? I know that I want to go to heaven, not because my sister's there. I want to go because Christ is there and he's the one that made it possible for any of us to be there at all. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, that is referring to believers who have already died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And those words do bring comfort, don't they? When our affection is set on above things, those words bring comfort. Now, if our affection is set on things on the earth, those words seem not very important. That seems like something in the way distant future that might happen or might not happen. And if it does, it's, it's not gonna be for a really long time. So why would I even pay attention to that? You know, that's, that's an earthly perspective. But if we have an eternal perspective, those words really do comfort us. Or we find the greatest comfort in the resurrection, the death, the resurrection of Christ and the fact that we are in him. Those are the things that will comfort us when our affection is set on things above I love the words to the poem, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. This was written, it's a 19 stanza poem, but don't worry, I'm only gonna read two of them. Uh, Written by Anne Cousin, who was privileged to be at the deathbed of a uh, preacher named Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish preacher who through his life was persecuted by his own country for simply teaching the truth. And uh, he was reflecting on his deathbed of these truths. His affection was definitely set on things above. And Anne Cousin took all of his reflections, all the things that he said, and she put them into a beautiful, beautiful poem. And if you've never heard it, it's actually set to music, and you should look it up and, and uh, read through all 19 stanzas because they're beautiful, and they will help you set your affection on things above. But here are my two favorite stanzas. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, the little our realities. But day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's the above things. That's the apart realm. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Christ is the glory. And tomorrow, we're gonna talk about the sufficiency of Christ. We're really gonna focus very much on Christ. And we're gonna be in chapter one. We're gonna talk about who he is and what he's done and why that, why that affects us, why it's important for us and how we can apply that to our life. So when we understand who we are in Christ, we can begin to understand what's really going on in the world with our little r realities. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for telling us these things in your word, for giving us hope by telling us that there is something else, by not leaving us in the dark to just play with the shadows that are on earth, but lifting our eyes through the scripture and through faith in the scripture to the above realities. Lord, help us to grab hold of these things and not to look at them as mundane or stuff that we have already heard and known our whole lives, but help us to look at them in a new way, that we are dead to sin, that we are risen with Christ, and we are safely hidden with you forever. Lord, we know that one day our faith will become sight, and it will be worth it all when we see you face to face. 
Lord, we love you. Bless our time together this week. Uh, May these ladies be spiritually refreshed and have a good time um, fellowshipping with one another and spending time in your word apart from their busy lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.